Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, May 18th, 2018. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer, who joins me today from the magazine's office in Manhattan. Welcome back, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. So this week, Andrew, publishing mourned the deaths of two renowned figures, author Tom Wolfe, who died on Monday this week at 88, and Peter Mayer, former Penguin CEO and president and founder of the Overlook Press, who died last Friday. He was 82. A younger Andrew Albanese, I've learned, had a chance to see Peter Mayer in action. Tell us about that and how you see his legacy. Uh, yeah, indeed. Very sad news this week uh, in the publishing world as we learned that Peter Mayer passed at 82. And, and you're right, I did have a chance to see Peter up close, a little too close at some times in my early years. My my first job was as an editorial assistant at Dutton New American Library. Dutton NAL was the imprint that was put together, which was part of the newly minted Penguin Group, which Peter was heading up along with Viking. And my boss was a great publisher. Is Her name was Michaela Hamilton, and she's now at Kensington. She was an executive there uh, at Penguin at the time. So I was stationed right down the hall from Peter's office, just steps away on the executive carpet, they used to call it, uh, at 50th Street here in Manhattan. You know, he wasn't there quite a bit. He was often in London, and Peter was often visiting Vikings offices on 23rd Street. Uh, And this was until we all moved into 375 Hudson Street. And I'll just say that we all have stories to tell (laughs) about Peter Mayer, Uh, quite a few stories. And I think I'll keep most of them to myself at this point. Sorry to disappoint. But I will tell you that my first job in public at Penguin near Peter Mayer came at a very interesting time. It was 1989 and the Satanic Verses had just been published by Viking. And in addition to everything else Peter had to manage, uh, for example putting together the Penguin group at the time, he had to keep an author alive too. Uh, we'll remember that we had the fatwa against Salman Rushdie from the Ayatollah Khomeini and he also had to keep his employees safe and calm. Um, even though we didn't actually publish the Satanic Verses at Dutton NAL. We still had picketers out in front of 50th Street, and we still had bomb scares called in occasionally. So keeping the employees calm was something that Peter also had to do as well. Uh, but here's what I can say about Peter, and that's that even as a, a kid, fresh out of college, uh, I knew that Peter was a publisher. You know, And that's something he proved later in his career when he was you know, finally forced out at Penguin. The company wanted to keep him on in an executive capacity, And he declined, and he went and started his new publisher, the Overlook Press. And the reason for that was, he said, because he was a publisher, not an executive. All he wanted to do was publish books. He didn't want to sit around in meetings uh, and, you know, be a bean counter. And indeed, he was a publisher. That's what he did until the very end. He he died with his boots on, as they say. And one more thing I'll say, and I know this uh, from my interactions with Peter, is that he loved it all. He loved the commercial fiction and nonfiction. He liked the literary stuff, you name it. If he published it, he loved it, all of it. Uh, And he led one of the world's great publishers and then started a new publisher through this incredible period, always with a focus on books. I mean, you think of the change that Peter saw throughout his career, uh, back from the days of like Bennett Surf, right up through the internet, just incredible. And given the way the industry has changed and consolidated, it seems to me we're not going to have many more book people like Peter Mayer leading publishers. They're increasingly going to come from, you know, the Bain capitals of the world or (laughs) wherever. But, you know, I I have to say I'm a lucky guy. 
my career, I've had the chance to work among some some legends. You know, Michael Hamilton was an amazing publisher, my first boss, uh, and to be within earshot of Peter Mayer and to learn from Peter. And I worked as a for another legendary editor named Sheldon Meyer at Oxford University Press. And for the first ten years of my career, it became clear then that I knew what I wanted to do. And it was books. And it was from watching these people work. It was a great education. And I'm really grateful for those experiences. In Monday's issue, PW will run a remembrance, another remembrance of Peter Mayer by writer Gail Feldman, who is at work on a biography of Random House founder and publisher Bennett Cerf, and is a contributor to the London-based bookseller, a kind of UK PW. It turns out, Andrew, Gail knew Peter, who was British-born, rather well. Uh, that's right. And, you know, it's a truly fitting tribute from Gail. She writes a soapbox about Peter and she recalls his life and career and really movingly gets to the essence of the man. She compares him to Bennett Surf and, you know, what made both men such, in her words, and I'll quote her here, culturally transformative publishers. Uh, and this included an outsized demanding ego, flitting attention spans, which is very true. I can attest to in, in Peter's case, but also an, an openness, a protean brilliance, she writes, and a bone deep love of books. Also, I can attest to that with Peter Mayer as well. In each generation, there are many good publishers, Gail concludes, but Peter was a truly great one. And indeed, his passing does feel like something more. Uh, it feels like a moment has actually passed for the publishing business. Well, indeed, and that moment uh, lingers with us because this week as well, the book world lost journalist turned novelist Tom Wolfe. Yeah, that's right. And also another loss that feels like sort of the end of an era, doesn't it? You know, Tom Wolfe left an indelible mark on the on the industry with great works like The Right Stuff and, you know, my favorite, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. Uh, and of course, if you were in New York City in the 90s, you had to read The Bonfire of the Vanities. Uh, you know, Wolfe changed the literary landscape as part of the new journalist movement. And on PW's site, we'll have a story about his impact. And, you know, we also expect we'll see some of his books hit the bestseller list again in the coming weeks. So, Kind of a sad week as we mourn two giants in the book world, but also we celebrate their legacies and hopefully we can take some lessons forward into this ever-changing book business in the digital age. Uh, the, we're just being changed by incredible forces and I think that the legacies of these two men will, will speak to us in the coming years. When Copyright Clearance Centers Beyond the Book returns, Andrew Albanese takes up the case of the changing business model. I'm Christopher Keneally with Copyright Clearance Centers Beyond the Book. Publishers Weekly Radio has the very best in book talk directly from New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. Join us every Friday for a full hour of exciting author interviews, best-selling books, and expert reports on the nuts and bolts of publishing. Every week, we make sure that you have the inside story of your favorite story. Take a listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC's Beyond the Book. It's Friday, May 18th, 2018, and Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly joins me with a review of the week's top stories in publishing. On Wednesday, a pair of textbook authors brought suit against educational publisher Cengage over its new subscription model. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so this is a really fascinating case that goes right to the heart of many issues facing educational publishing, and in fact, all publishing, really, uh, especially now in this new digital age. You know, in a nutshell, the suit 
filed by authors David Knox and Caroline Schacht, claims that textbook publisher Cengage, through the introduction of its new Cengage Unlimited subscription product, is systematically dismantling and frustrating the sales of their works in favor of selling subscriptions to Cengage's digital products. And that matters because what they're saying is that instead of earning a contractual royalty based on a sale, the publisher is now seeking to pay the authors a piece of the subscription revenue based on a formula that the publisher alone has devised. So the core claim here is that by pivoting to this digital subscription service, the authors say Cengage has implemented wrongfully this unilateral change to the compensation structure for its authors, you know, switching from this contractual royalty on sale model to a relative use model. All right. So Cengage Unlimited, what is it? And do you believe it's going to lead to fewer sales and less money as the authors claim? Sure. So on their website, Cengage lists a launch date of August of this year, August 2018, for Cengage Unlimited, and they describe it as a subscription service for college course materials. And a recent release notes that students who buy Cengage Unlimited or subscription to Cengage Unlimited will be able to access all the digital learning platforms, ebooks, online homework and study tools that Cengage has to offer. And that's a lot. That's 22,000 products across 70 disciplines and 675 courses, and they can get access to any of this stuff for $119.99 per term or $179.99 for the year. So a couple interesting notes here about the genesis of the plan. First, it comes after the company emerged from bankruptcy in 2014. Cengage is a huge publisher, of course, and they were on the ropes, but they came out of it. And like so many who have near-death experiences, they saw the light. And the light for Cengage was the future is digital and this, the subscription thing, this is how the future is going to work. This all-you-can-eat buffet of a subscription service, which we see with Netflix and Amazon, this is what they want the future to look like. And they set about making that vision reality. But point two that's interesting to me is that they are selling their plan under the guise of saving students money, which I agree plays way better than, you know, this is how we're going to keep our ship afloat, right? It's a very solid way to market. For this one low price per semester, a student can get all this stuff. Uh, and who could be against, you know, giving the students a better deal? especially because many of Cengage's authors are also educators, right? They know all too well how hard it is for their students to cough up all that book money every year. And with growing competition from things like open educational resources, well, the writing is on the wall for textbook publishing. But some of Cengage's authors... And, you know, the cynical me would point this out as well, that maybe it will save students money, but when the textbook market was really good, no one really thought too much about saving students money. It was just the opposite, in fact, right? It was all about how big a check can we get the students' parents to write. So what these two authors are basically claiming is that the new model that Cengage is introducing, the subscription model, is not really about saving students money because Cengage still wants to make as much money as it can. It's about implementing a new business model for Cengage at the right margins. And in order to make those margins work, in order to make this new business this model float, they have to shift some burdens. And one of those, of course, the authors claim, is finding a way to pay their authors less. And they're not entirely wrong about that, but what's the alternative? That's the question I would point out here. You know, what is the alternative for Cengage, a publisher in bankruptcy? And if the authors do manage to succeed in their case and get their rights back, what are they going to do with those rights? The market reality is the market reality. And while I think the authors may have a point here about what their compensation is going to look like, I'm not sure they have an argument. And I think it's unlikely that they actually have a legal case. All right. So your uncertainty is about a legal point here. What do you see this turning on? 
Well, this case, it seems to me, is going to turn on the contract, plain and simple. And that's notable in two ways. You know, first, I'll just point out that it's hard for me to believe that Cengage lawyers would okay this grant subscription plan if their contracts did not include a sweeping digital rights grant that allowed for this kind of use. In addition, Cengage is still selling textbooks. The royalty rates are still enforced there. They still have that business. Will this new business, the subscription business, focus and shift dollars away from sales that earn royalty to sales that get a cut of the revenue pool? Maybe. Okay, yes, probably it will. But again, you can't really sue the publisher for adding a business model, especially if the contract allows that. So the case really is going to hinge on whether Cengage is breaching the contract. And to me, I haven't seen the contract, so I don't know for sure, but it just seems a, a stretch to believe that a publisher like Cengage would, fresh off a of bankruptcy especially, stake its future on a murky contract clause. That just doesn't seem likely to me. And your other quibble, Andrew, is over a recurring aspect in many of these author-related cases. Yeah, the other point is about the class action claim. You know, it's unclear whether the authors can actually succeed in putting together a class here. You know, our listeners may recall that in recent years, Pearson was facing a class action suit from some of its authors. And one of the questions that was before the court in that case, which was settled, uh, was with this question unresolved, I should add, was whether the authors could actually form a class. And that's because, as Pearson attorneys argued, each contract was separately and individually negotiated and signed. Now, it's possible that a class could be certified. Indeed, the court may find that it's burdensome for every Cengage author to individually bring a suit over the same clause. But on the other hand, these authors all negotiated their deals and they all signed the contracts. So I think a more likely way for this suit to progress, if it progresses, would be for the questions at hand to be resolved for these two plaintiff authors. And if the contract, in the opinion of the court, enables Cengage to offer its subscription product, well, case closed. But if the court does hold for the authors, all right, then maybe at that point it's possible for a follow-on class action case to, to swing into action and try to give universal relief to send uh, gauge authors, not unlike what we talked about a few weeks ago with the freelance writers case, which of course came after the Tassini case. And hey, look how well that worked out. It only took 17 years <laughs> for it to be resolved. Anyway, the Cengage case is really fascinating. I think it's one to watch, though I have to say, press tax here is going to be what the contract says. So if the contract says what we think it says, this one could end really quickly. Well, Andrew, it's spelled out pretty clearly in your contract. Every Friday, you join us for the latest news and analysis on publishing. Thanks for speaking with me today. My pleasure, as always. Up next on Beyond the Book, the rise of independent publishing has changed the book business as dramatically as social media has affected the news cycle. Self-published authors like Jeff Rivera, though, have recently seen market winds shifting. A best-selling author of dozens of titles in a wide range of genre, Rivera rolled the self-publishing wave to considerable heights, though he recently announced in a blog post that he will suspend his book writing to focus exclusively on filmmaking. What I noticed mostly, and I have for the last few years, is consumer attention in, in general. But I noticed that a lot of attention in the last year and a half has really shifted from reading not only physical books or ebooks, but more to social media, more to gaming, more to live events, more to music, more to films, more to Netflix style television binge watching. And I had to take a real practical realistic look at 
consumer behavior and think to myself, you know, where do I want to be? It's not even what's happening in the future. It's what's happening right now. When you take an honest look at what consumer behavior is, um, that's where I want to head. An indie author moves away from books. Next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, a global leader in content management, discovery, and document delivery solutions. Through its relationships with those who use and create content, CCC and its subsidiaries, Rights Direct and Nexus, drive market-based solutions that accelerate knowledge, power publishing, and advance copyright. Beyond the Book co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Join us again soon on Beyond the Book. Mm-hmm.